weeks. All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, hope you do. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're in a series entitled House Rules. For as a church, we're walking through the book of 1 Timothy together. We're walking through verse by verse. And last week, Paul stated the very reason why he wrote this entire book found in 1 Timothy. It's actually found in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, he says, if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. One of the things that's true no matter what you are communicating, whether it's uh, financial information, whether it's business information, educational information, or spiritual things, if you are communicating something, if it ain't working at home, don't export it. If it ain't working at home, don't export it. A message is either amplified or muted based on the credibility of the communicator's character. There's something about who we are on the inside that either amplifies what we say we believe or discredits it. So if it ain't working at home, don't export it. That's true today, and it was true then as well. Because we've got this author, Paul, who's writing a letter to this young pastor, Timothy. And he's told him now over and over again to hold to sound doctrine. That's what he's told him. So I'm over and over again to stand firm on good biblical teaching, to hold firm to what we've called the plumb line, to hold firm to God's word. He's been told to raise up elders. He's been told to raise up deacons and other church leaders that are all a part not of a cruise ship, but who are a part of a battleship that is the New Testament faith community. That's what he's told us over and over again. Stop viewing your church like a cruise ship and start viewing it like a battleship because there's a mission for the local church. Last week, Paul told Timothy and us to hold to historic faith. I talked about the Apostles' Creed, the doxology, how great thou art, the Westminster Confession, and more, and how similar it was to this creed that Paul referenced, where he confessed six critical, absolutely essential things about Jesus. But really the controversy didn't come there. The controversy for most of you came at the beginning of chapter 4. And it's not because I said it, it's just that I told you that Paul said it. And the conscience, Paul says that anything, anything, any belief system that stands in opposition to these six things, any belief system that is contrary to these six things is sourced in demonic activity and its leadership are hypocritical liars. Yeah, wow. See what you missed last week, you know, if you weren't here? That's a lot. And so in that regard, this book is not simply written to a church some centuries ago and we're like creeping someone else's mail. That's not what's happening here. 
Because some of you are like, Kevin, I don't even know what Gnosticism even is, and so whatever. No, this isn't just a book written about that context. In some ways, what Paul is doing is giving a young pastor who is responsible for a very, very influential church in a very, very corrupt city, in a very, very corrupt culture, he's giving them lessons that are not just for that day, but lessons that are for us this day as well. And in many ways, isn't that kind of the beauty and sort of the curse of the Bible? That, that you can read it and go, wow, in that context, that's a lot. And then you read it, and you know it's for our context too. It's written to us too, and you're like, mm, that stings a little. So it's both beautiful and sort of a curse at the same time, and yet here we are. It still stings a little bit. And that, isn't that sort of the point of God's Word? Paul writes this again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, hey, hey, God's word, it's useful for teaching. I like that. But he says it's useful for rebuking. Don't like that. And it's useful, he says, for correcting. I don't like that, but it's useful for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for most good works, for some good works. No, he says for every good work. And this concept of holding to biblical teaching is so timely, and yet it's really controversial in our day. I don't know if you watch the news. It gives me sort of a twitch when I watch the news, right? I don't know about you, or it makes me want to take medicine. Some people turn on the news, right, and they leave it on all day. Those are called angry people, right? If you're watching the news all day, but if you watch it, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but on the TV right now, People are deconstructing authority in their lives. Oh, the police. We're deconstructing the police. Or people are deconstructing our faith and the Bible's validity in our lives. Or we're deconstructing gender, gender identity and gender fluidity for all ages with or without parental consent. We're deconstructing marriage and God's design. We're deconstructing everything looking to oneself to determine our own truth. This is what's right or wrong for me. You decide what's right or wrong for you, but don't speak into my life. This is what I deem is true. And this book that was written centuries ago is as applicable today, here in our day, as it was in theirs. And so the admonitions that are given to Timothy are actually speaking to the chaos that's in our world as well. And so with that in mind, look at 1 Timothy Chapter 4, starting in verse 6, this is what it says. If you point these things out, you think, and you think, what things? The six things he just said in 1 Timothy 3, 16, that's the these things, okay? So those are the common confessions that we just read. And then he says, who is it for? Well, Paul says, brothers and sisters. And, it, and I looked that up. You know what it translates from the Greek? All y'all. That's what it means, all y'all, okay? So it says brothers and sisters. So what it reads, verse 16 reads, if you point these things out to all y'all, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. And so let's be clear, when you read a good minister of Jesus Christ, please do not think clergy. Do not think pastor. Oh no, he's speaking to you. To us, maybe. Maybe that's a better way to say it. To us, the everyday church congregant. 
That's 27. Every man and woman of the church should be engaged in the living out of God's kingdom purposes on earth as it is in heaven. It's a recognition that every single person in that church and really every single person in this church is going to have to fight. You are going to have to fight every single day to hold to sound doctrine and you're going to have to fight every single day to refute the false doctrines that are coming into your life through a television screen, through an iPad, through your email, and through culture. You're going to have to fight the false doctrines that are coming at you both from within the church, from within our city, and within culture. And Paul says, if you hold to these six things I just mentioned, you're, you're on your way to being a good servant of Christ every day. But if you look at verse 16, the word that stood out to me was nourished. I don't know if you saw that. It's the only place in the entire Bible that that word nourished is used. And so when you start looking at what he means by nourished, you have to go to literature now outside of the biblical text because there's no other usages of it. So when you look at the culture of the day, it, it means more than just feeding your body, like nutrition. It means more than that. I would say it's used more in regards to the raising of children. So it means more like the training up of a child. So think back to when you had toddlers. Some of you are like, that's like five minutes ago, right? You still have toddlers, and you're like, yes. So when you have toddlers, nourishing a toddler means feeding them, yes. But it also means teaching them to tie their shoes. It also means teaching them to ride a bike and to share their toys and how to have healthy relationships. If you have little children, nourishing them is a never-ending endeavor. 24 hours a day. That's sort of what he's getting at here. That's why the word train might be a better translation. Paul is saying that you are constantly training. You're constantly nourishing on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you've been following. So the idea here is you don't stay a baby Christian. You don't stay, you don't stay spiritual infants. You nourish your faith constantly so you grow and mature. If you are teaching your toddler how to tie their shoes, it's cute. If you're teaching your sophomore in high school how to tie their shoes, it's awkward and weird. It's just sad. They're never going to get a girlfriend, right? That's kind of how it is. There's real problems there. It's not cute anymore. And the same thing is true of the Christian faith. Some of you are still spiritual infants, and it's not cute anymore. It's awkward and weird. Because you say you've been a believer for 10, 20, 30 years, and you're still drinking out of a bottle. Not cute. That's called weird. So you're not supposed to stay a spiritual infant. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. He says, like newborn infants long for spiritual milk. Sure, start there. That by it you may grow up. See, you grow up into salvation. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. You're not saved so that you could just sit in one place year after year after year staying a spiritual baby. Churches need to teach God's word and the doctrine and truth it contains, not sermon series entitled, True Story from Our, Com from our, from our Community, A Whoopee Cushion Life. That's the sermon series. Or the gospel according to Breaking Bad, which sounds cool on one hand, but what are you doing? What are you doing? 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Tell me that's not true today. Too many churches are picking up God's word on a spoon and going open up chugga, 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 at you. That's called a whoopee cushion life sermon series. What are we doing? What on God's green earth are we doing? We are to be people who mature in the word of God, are nurtured and nourished in the word of God so that we might grow. Because the truth is, and parents, you know this as well as I do, we become like those who we spend time with. It's why parents are so, and I'm a parent, so annoying because we want to know, who, who are you going with? Whose house are you going to be at? We want to know. Because show me who you hang out with, and I'll show you who you're becoming. Show me who you hang out with, teenagers, and I'll show you who you're becoming. And the same thing, parents, is true spiritually. Show me who you hang out with, and I'll show you who you're becoming. Same thing is true with God's word. Nourish your soul, train your soul every day in God's word, and attend a church that teaches God's word, and it'll influence your life. It will change who you are. But look at verse 7. Paul says, if we're influenced by our surroundings, we've got to be careful. Paul writes, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wise tales. He says, shun those things, refuse those things, distance yourself from those things. He says, rather, train yourself to be godly. And you think, old wives' tales, what is that? Well, you know the person, uh, and today it's like, they tell you the story about a fish and it's this big. And then you hear them tell that same story to someone else and the fish is this big. And they tell it again, the fish is this big, and every time that story kind of changes. Or, or maybe think from the Napoleon Dynamite, think Uncle Rico, right? If you saw that movie, Uncle Rico is the same thing when he says, listen, if I could have played football, and if coach had just put me in, I could have won the game, and they're totally living in the glory days of like 1989. He says these are fruitless discussions. These, these are myths. These are in some ways godless, silly, and profane things that, that really don't matter. So Paul says, be careful. There are discussions and conversations in our lives that lead absolutely nowhere. They're a total waste of time. And oh, how easily we get entangled in conversations and discussions that lead absolutely nowhere. Don't believe me? They're all over this thing called the internet. There are conspiracy theories that we read about and read about Loch Ness monsters and Bigfoots and all sorts of whatever it is. And there are TikTok challenges this month and the next month and the next month. There's an endless rabbit hole of scrolling on Instagram and Facebook. Just all kinds of silly, silly stuff that in and of itself is not evil. It's just not really profitable for anything. So we are being shaped by nonsense to become part of the nonsense 
so that we can show people online our nonsense. That's what Paul's talking about here. Be very, very careful about those things. And Paul says instead of that stuff, Rather, let's train ourselves or discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of holiness. So instead of being disciplined or trained or nourished, formed by foolishness, let's train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Now the word discipline in the Greek language is the word gymnazo. So that's where we get our word gym or gymnasium. So the idea is if you're going to spend a lot of time and energy, and effort, and resources, training yourself for whatever, whether it's your career, whether it's your golf game, whether it's your time literally in the gym, you're going to train yourself to become something you are not currently. That's why you've disciplined yourself. You're not this, but you're training to grow to become that. Look at verse 8. He says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So Paul says, look, physical discipline is of some value. It's not lacking value. It's not foolishness like those other things, but it's just not nearly as valuable as godliness. Do you realize there will come a day that no one will know or care that you played high school or college football. It's probably today, right? There's going to come a day that no one will know or care that you played high school or college or semi-pro or pro baseball. There's going to come a day that no one's going to care or know what you did for a living, what you did for a career, but it will always matter how deep and intimate and solid and sound your faith is. It will always matter. You know who it's going to matter to? It's going to matter to your kids. It's going to matter to your friends. It's going to matter to your grandkids. It's going to matter to your spouse. It's going to matter today and tomorrow and forevermore. No one's going to care about your sporting accomplishments, but they will always care how deep and how sound and how intimate and how solid your faith is. But remember, Paul's not talking about moralism. Like just trying really hard to be godly. Pastor and author John Ortberg wrote a book entitled The Life You've Always Wanted. And he's got a chapter in there about training versus trying, and it's gold. It's absolutely gold. And here's the idea. He says, if as a church I said tomorrow, tomorrow morning I want us all to meet in the church parking lot, and we're going to run a marathon. Some of you are like, I'm in. And some of you are like, "Mm, yeah, no right? You're not going to do that at all. But some of you who said yes are going to show up, and then I'm going to say, are you sure you're ready? And you're like, no, 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 Kevin, I've got this. I'm going to really give this a lot of effort on trying alone. It's not going to happen. I ran a marathon. I ran one. Probably never run another one. It took me 18 months to train for that marathon. Trying is not sufficient. But if I said to you, hey guys, in one year from today, we're going to meet in the church parking lot. In one year, 
We're going we're gonna to run a marathon. So let's start training. There's a better chance that at least more of us are going to be prepared and ready to go to run that marathon. Why? Because training is effective. Trying is not. Training requires an ongoing overtime investment in something that is shaping you to be something that you are not currently. That's the idea. And so that's a major distinction between trying and training. You know what the truth is? We tend to overestimate the things that we can do through trying, and we tend to underestimate the things that we can do through training. And so what does it mean to train yourself spiritually? See, you already know the answer to this. You just don't like it. You know the answer. See, like, when we want to get better at golf, because we're awful, we buy golf clubs. And then we figure out going to the range multiple times a week and hitting those clubs. And then we go to the putting green and we putt over and over again. And sometimes we do crazy things like we seek out a professional and we ask for their advice and they videotape our swings and they give us adjustments to make and we are consistent and we are persistent and we are intentional and we show up on a course and we actually play the game and then all of a sudden your game gets better. We do that all the time. Because you do that with your new job too. You show up at your new job and you don't even know where the copy machine is. You can't find the bathroom. You don't know anything about that place and so you could either quit right then or... You could be like, I'm going to get fired, so I better get better at this. And so you work really hard, and you work extra hours, and you get really good at it. Why? Because you care. And what Paul is saying is, you will not try to be godly and end up godly. You have to train yourself to be godly, which means, here's your truth bomb moment. You have to care. You have to actually care more about your spiritual development than your golf game. You have to care more about your spiritual development than your job. It has to be something important enough that, that you recognize where you are and where you'd like to be. And then we are strategically investing in a growth process, engaging our life and practices around things that will enable us to do that, which we cannot do on willpower alone. Now, can we just be honest for a second? Most people have an aversion to training, to discipline. Because I say words like discipline or training and people are like, oh no, I hate that word. Pretty soon you're going to tell me I can't eat chips. <laughs> I can't eat Skittles. And you're going to tell me that I'm going to have to give my good hard-earned money to a gym that smells weird. And I'm going to show up in clothes that make me feel awkward and are stretchy, and I'm going to start sweating, and I'm going to wake up the next day, and I'm going to be sore, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any of that, and the main differentiator with people is, what's the goal? Here's my point, because if I tell you, you know what, some of us, the rest of us are going to train in, in a pizza eating contest. Something like, I'm in. An ice cream eating contest. We're going to train to make the best cup of coffee in the entire city of St. Petersburg. And some of you are like, I'm in. What's the difference? The end goal. The question always will be, what are you training for? If it's something we see as truly rewarding at the end, then we deem it worthwhile. It's worth it. What do our actions show about our spiritual life? Some of us are like, I'm killing it with the ice cream. 
and I got some work to do in my spiritual life. Because here's the convicting part. The end goal of spiritual training is an abiding relationship with a manifested Christ. And we hear that and we say amen, yet we don't train. It's enjoying his presence and delighting in his easy yoke. It's experiencing the joy of life in his kingdom and, and living for his purposes. It's, it's sensing day by day, moment by moment, his pleasure in our life. But do we honestly believe that it's worth it? Do we actually believe that's worth more than a good pizza? Do we really think that's worth more than a great cup of coffee? Do we believe that? Because the end goal is not that you're moral. That's not the end goal. Morality is an overflow of a deep, rich, and abiding relationship with Jesus. The end goal is intimacy with our Christ, who in his presence is the fullness of joy, fully loved, fully forgiven, fully accepted by the only entity in the history of the world that can fully accept you, fully love you, and fully forgive you. That's what we're training for. And is that better than a cup of coffee? But here's the good news. And some of you are like, because I could use some good news, Kevin, right now, because I'm feeling kind of tough on myself. Here's the good news. God is at work in you. That's the good news. Did you know that God is at work in you right now? That's Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Tell me that's not like a mic drop promise moment in scripture. I love that. Or this from Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to keep working on you whether you like it or not. I like that. It's like my grandmother who prays for me. She's going to pray for me whether I like it or not. I like that. Or maybe what he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. All of which means that God is working in your life right now. You may not be aware of it. Doesn't matter. He is, which means if you can learn to engage the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the transforming spiritual training that God wants to accomplish in you and through you, you might experience a joy in the Christian life like you've never, ever experienced before. See, what Satan doesn't want you to hear this morning is a life lived in relationship with Jesus Christ is flat out better. He wants you to believe that everything else is just as good or better. But that's not true. It's just where life is found, where fulfillment and peace and joy and hope is found of just doing life According to God's design, it's flat out better. And he does not want you to hear that, and he certainly doesn't want you to believe that. And as if to really emphasize this point, look at verse 9. It says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Paul's saying, look, I'm not messing around here. This is absolutely 100% right and true. And he says, so don't waste your life being trained by nonsense. 
Don't waste your life being trained by nonsense. Don't waste your life trying to be nourished, trying to be satisfied or fueled by things of this world. Don't waste your life on conspiracy theories and TikTok challenges and old wives' tales and shock value, things that you saw on the internet. Don't waste your life on those things. They will not bring you the joy that Christ will bring you. Train for godliness. Verse 10, he goes on, that's why we labor and strive, he says. That's why we labor. That's why we strive because we've put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. That's what we're about. We're about the people of God. We need to be about laboring and striving, fixing our hope on Jesus and then living and proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone to anyone who's going to listen. But what's interesting is many Christians then and many Christians today, we lean on shovels and pray for holes. Don't we? We lean on shovels. We want the world to come to know Christ. Just tell me where to send my money. That's leaning on a shovel and praying for a hole, right? If you're going, I mean, I don't want to say anything to anybody because that's kind of awkward. And I don't want to make my neighbors mad or my friends mad or I don't want to offend anybody in my world. I just want you to, Jesus, bring revival. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that goes together. Paul says there's something about him and us that works together. Philippians 2 says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like it's a lot up to me. But it's not because the very next verse says, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there's a partnership in this spiritual training. This isn't spiritual neutral. I said this last service, it might get me in trouble here too. It's spiritual. It's not like you eat a mushroom, hallucinate, and you become more like Jesus. I said that's called sophomore year in college. <laughs> some of you are like, that's not funny, but it was some of you. <laughs> I know it was some of you. And, and that's not how it works. That, that's not, spiritual training is sensing what the Holy Spirit's doing. It's asking other people, hey, what do you see in my life that needs to get out? And what do you see in my life that needs to get in? Hey, what, what are the blind spots? In my, can you help me recognize my blind spots? Maybe that I've avoided for years. And actually investing by the Holy Spirit in your life that you would invest some significant time and energy and resources and, and effort into laboring and striving for godliness and not just your golf game, not just your career, not just this other stuff. There's a sense that I see what God's doing and I'm joining him with my effort driven by the Holy Spirit. But the end of verse 10 there seems to imply, doesn't it, that everyone will be saved. Does it seem to imply that? And you're thinking, is that right? And I go, no, make no mistake. There's a difference between God's desire and God's decree. There's a difference between God's desire and God's decree. Is Jesus the Savior of all of mankind? Absolutely, yes, he is. He's sufficient for all men and women. But Jesus is efficient only for those who appropriate personal faith, which means that the death of Christ is open to any person who believes in the gospel. And in believing in the gospel, you now appropriate the finished work of Christ Jesus. 
And in verse 11, he says, be about these things. Paul says, command and teach these things. He doesn't say, hey, suggest these things, encourage these things, alliterate these things in five easy steps or five easy words. He doesn't say that. He says, command these things and teach them. He says, this is real stuff and it matters. And when you do, God will bring about a maturity in you that will have nothing to do with your age which means that some of us can be 16 and more spiritually mature than the 38-year-old, the 48-year-old, or the 58-year-old. Physical age does not dictate our spiritual maturity because that's verse 12. He says, hey, hey, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech. Set an example for them in conduct, and in love, and faith, and purity. Hey, Timothy, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. I know you're young, and I know that in the Roman culture, unless you have gray hair or are bald, nobody thinks you know anything about anything. I know that about the culture, Timothy. And yet here's this young guy pastoring this highly influential church one of the most influential in the region. And Paul's saying to him, look, it doesn't matter if you have gray hair or not. Just be an example for the believers. Just keep letting it do a work in you and then export it. Let it do a work in you and then export it. And God's saying, I promise you I will do the rest. Tell them to follow you as you follow Christ. Tell them that. Because if you keep God's word in front of you, great things will happen. That's verse 13. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Church, there is nothing else to say in a pulpit if it's not followed by chapter and verse. Because the rest is human opinion. There's nothing else worth saying in a pulpit unless there's a chapter and verse attached to it. Because everything else is human opinion. Teach the Bible. Teach the Word. That's what he's saying. You want to know why we teach the Word here? Because that's what it says. Otherwise, I have to answer for that, and I'm not doing it. I'm not answering for that. It's what it says. That's what we're going to do. And that's verse 14. He says, do not neglect your gift, Timothy, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of believers laid their hands on you. He says, listen, the body of believers saw in you that you had this incredible gift for teaching and preaching. We saw it in you. We saw it in Scripture. So we laid our hands on you and we affirmed it in you. So Paul's saying, hey, young pastor, young Christian, make sure that your ministry both inside of you and the outside of you is the Word of God. Use the spiritual gift, Timothy, that God has given you. And some of you know your spiritual gift in here, and some of you do not. If you don't, contact Pastor Alex. Call him, email him, grab him in the lobby. You need to know your spiritual gift. Because you know what some of you are doing? This is how foolish it looks. You've still got a Christmas tree in your house in August, and there's one present underneath it addressed to you, and you've not opened it. And your kids know it's there. Your family members know it's there. You walk around, you pretend it's not there. I don't know about you. In my house, if there's any presents left over when the kids are done opening theirs, they'll open mine too, right? <laughs> open your present. Open your gift. If you go, I don't know how to. That's a little awkward, by the way, but we'll help you. Reach out to us. Contact us. Because when you use your spiritual gift, it's a beautiful, fulfilling, life-giving thing. What's in the package 
is great stuff. But you don't know it. So many Christians never take the time to figure out their spiritual gift, and then they never use that gift in the body. They're holding the gift. They just don't know how to use the gift. You're missing out in ways you can't even imagine. Because when you use your spiritual gift, it feels like you could do whatever it is forever, whether it's serving or encouraging or teaching or preaching or leading or, or doing administration stuff or blazing new trails. Or maybe you got the spiritual gift of discernment and more. Sure, you get tired, but you fall into bed with a huge smile on your face. What is your spiritual gift? Let me tell you, it's not sarcasm because that's not a spiritual gift, because otherwise it'll be mine too, all right? So you have a spiritual gift. See, my wife serves in Detroit all summer. She cooks for 40 plus people every week for eight straight weeks. Now she's a teacher by trade. It's her spiritual gift of teaching. And so what she does when she teaches, you know it's a spiritual gift because she teaches algebra to middle schoolers. Preach, right? You know, <laughs> said, no, well, let me do that, right? Uh, she does that. But when she gets out of school, the very first week she takes off for Detroit, she spends all summer making meals over and over and over again. And she does that for eight weeks. She comes home on Saturday and she reports to school on Monday. She does it every year. Why? Because one of her gifts is serving, and she loves it. She's on cloud nine. Is it easy? No. Is it exhausting? Yes. But there's nothing she'd rather be doing. Why? Because joy comes through service. You're looking in the wrong place for your joy. Joy comes through using your spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you, and you will do amazing things. Joy comes through service every time. What's your spiritual gift? And so Timothy is told, don't neglect this gift. Let's not neglect our gifts. And Paul says in verse 15, he says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So not only should we not neglect our spiritual gift, but we should, get, we should be getting better at operating within our spiritual gifting. And so then Paul closes with a really strong exhortation for Timothy and really for us. He summarizes the whole section in verse 16. Paul says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. I thought, why does he tell us to pay attention to ourself first? Because if it ain't working at home, don't export it. Make sure God's Word and the Holy Spirit are doing something in you and pay really close attention to what you're teaching when you speak and when you're teaching by the way you live with your actions. Paul continues, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so as we close, maybe something to think about today when you go to lunch with your family maybe through this week, is what does persevering spiritual training look like in your life? Like spend some time today talking as a family. What does spiritual training actually look like in my life? And some of you are like, Kevin, you're not going to give me a book to pick up in the lobby and read? No, you already own the book. Read that one, right? Or, Kevin, you're not going to alliterate this with five Ps to make it easy? No, I'm not going to do that. I want you to think about it. Because you've thought about the training in other areas of your life. You've figured that out. 
Now it's time for you to spend some time figuring out your spiritual life. In the next year or two, where do you want to be with the Lord that you're not today? Like, for me, it was, I want to get better at prayer. That means i got to start praying. I've been listening to podcasts on prayer. I've been reading different prayers of the Scripture. I've been learning how to pray Scripture. I'm trying to get better. I want to be a better, deeper prayer. I'm doing the same thing you're doing, by the way. It's not like I'm asking you to do something I'm not doing. And so, what steps do you need to take to grow in that area? It's going to take some real time and dedicated energy, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. My prayer life is so much better. And second, I would say, what are your spiritual gifts? Do you know them? Does your family know your spiritual gifts? Like you might tell your family, you know what my spiritual gift is? My spiritual gift is encouragement. Your family might say, "Mm, it's not. (laughs) So so you might need to ask some people because it might not be what you think it is, but why not figure it out? And then if you can't figure it out, let us help you. But remember, these gifts are your gifts. So you've got to take some ownership for your gift. Let's go, right? That's what I want to do. I shouldn't clap at you, but that's kind of like, come on, you've got a gift. Let's open it. And I would say, figure out which one you have, because when you do, you're going to find out how God uniquely made you. And I don't need another you at this church. I just need you. Because you're really great. God made you awesome, and he gave you incredible gifts that he gave nobody else. He uniquely made you, but we need you to figure it out because there's no one else like you. Church, the beauty of the body is that we are completely different people, and yet under the common headship of Jesus Christ, we find unity together, and to me, that's beautiful. We find ourselves growing deeper together. We find ourselves using our gifts together, and we will find ourselves impacting this world together. But for it to work like God designed, we're going to have to listen and engage with his house rules.